good to be gathered with you on the Lord's Day today. And I encourage you and invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. If you have your copy of God's Word, please turn to John chapter 5 with me. John chapter 5, we want to focus this morning on verses 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 47. John 5, 31 through 47. Let us hear the Word of God together. John 5, beginning in verse 31. The Lord Jesus is speaking here. He says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father Himself who sent me has testified of me. You you have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form, but you do not have His Word abiding in you, because whom He sent, Him you do not believe." You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of Me. But you are not willing to come to Me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in My Father's name, and you do not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another? And do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Amen. Let's pray. Let's unite our hearts and ask for God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let us pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank You for the greatest gift that You have given this world. The gift of Your Son. Your only begotten from all eternity and before all ages, perfect Son, to come into this world as the light of the world to shed abroad the light of truth, the light of God. We thank You that He has spoken to us truly. In these words, we find perfectly trustworthy testimony. He came declaring His identity, declaring His mission. And while many of His own did not receive Him, we thank You, Father, that You have opened our hearts to receive and to believe His Word. Father, thank You for the glories of Your Son as as we've just sung. Meekness and majesty. That the infinite God came to this earth taking upon Himself the limited human nature that He might suffer and die for our sakes. That He might raise us to the heights of His throne. Father, we thank You for the Gospel. We thank You that Christ prays for His people now And His prayers are always heard. That we shall not be lost, but we shall be with Him where He is to see His glory. Father, teach us and instruct us this morning from Your Word. From this sobering passage that instructs us about unbelief. Instructs us about the the foundation of testimony and witness upon which You have established the Gospel and our faith. We pray that we, Your people, would be comforted. We pray that the skeptic and the unbeliever would be convicted and exhorted.
to heed the testimony that You have given this world of Your Son. Father, teach us, we pray. Send Your Spirit, Your Holy Spirit to us. We pray that He would illuminate our darkened minds and cause us to see truth and to glory in the truth. That we would not come to Your Word as these Jews came to Your Word, studying it and yet missing Christ, but that we would come to Your Word to behold Your glory and the glory of Your Son and the glory of Your Spirit. Father, be the help of Your people, we pray. Draw near to us. Give us attentive hearts and attentive minds, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll begin this morning as we usually do with our exposition of the text. And then secondly, we will transition into our doctrine and our application and how we are instructed from this text. And so let's begin with our exposition. And it's at this point I encourage you to have your Bibles open to John chapter 5 so that you can see for yourself what God is speaking to us. Just to give you a brief introduction, we've, it's been a few weeks since we've been in John. This is the final section of Jesus' defense in John chapter 5. And this is the section that concludes His legal defense. He has answered their charges. He has asserted and defended His equality with the Father. He has asserted that He Himself is the giver of life and the judge of all humanity. And now, to formally legalize and legitimize His defense, He appeals now to three external witnesses in addition to His own testimony. And this is in keeping with the law's standard of two or three witnesses. And this is essentially Jesus exonerating Himself from the assertion that He is merely testifying on His own behalf. And this is very obvious. You may have noticed even as we read the text, the fact that this is a very legal type of setting is made very obvious by the fact that in these verses, the noun and verb forms of the word for testimony or witness are used no less than 11 times. This is the formal corroborating of witnesses to settle His claims. And so let's begin in verse 31. Verse 31, he says to these Jewish leaders who have, as it were, put him on trial to give a defense for why he works on the Sabbath. He says, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. Now, I think the ESV gets closer to the sense of what Jesus is saying here when it translates it, if I bear witness of myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 14 Jesus will say, even if I bear witness of myself, my testimony is true. And so he's not saying here that simply if because he bears witness about himself that that automatically means his testimony is false, but he is condescending to their standards and giving external testimony in addition to his own testimony. And he appeals here, we'll look at each of them one by one, he appeals here first of all to John the Baptist as human testimony. Secondly, he appeals to his Father bearing witness through the works that he does. And thirdly, he, he calls on his Father bearing witness to him in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, you might go home and pick up a commentary or two on these things, and I just want to make it clear. I'm very well aware that there are different ways in which different commentators have broken up these witnesses. If you have the ESV, I believe it breaks it up into four witnesses. Uh, some even see five witnesses in, in the event that you see Moses as distinct from the Old Testament. I'm encompassing them under three main headings, three testimonies Jesus calls upon here. And so he begins, first of all, with human testimony in verse 32. He says, there is another, that is not just himself, but there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that He bears about Me is true. Who's He talking about? Verse 33, You, talking to these Jewish leaders, you sent to John, that is John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. He says in verse 35, describing John, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice in His light for a while. God never leaves His witnesses 
or his messengers without a witness. And when God prepared this world for the coming of his Son and the coming of Christ, the Father not only bore witness to the Son from heaven at Jesus' baptism, but he prepared Israel for their coming Messiah by sending one to us just like us to prepare the way. That was John the Baptist's mission to Israel to come and to prepare the way and to make straight the paths of the coming Lord. Jesus here calls John a burning and shining lamp. Now, think of the imagery there. What do burning, shining lamps do? They emanate light. They shine. John came and made known to Israel the coming, fast-approaching work of God. And John, as a faithful servant, zealously and fervently carried out his mission to make known the coming of Christ through his preaching and his baptism. Notice Jesus does not describe John as a flickering wick or one whose light was obscure and unknown, but rather John is a burning and a shining lamp to Israel. That is to say, there was virtually no one in Israel who was not aware of John's ministry. And you remember, as we saw in the beginning of John's Gospel, what was the centerpiece of John the Baptist's message? That there was soon coming after him one whose sandal he was not worthy to untie. John's message was with great clarity, without any mixing of words, Israel, your Christ is coming. And you need to repent and prepare your hearts for your coming King. And Jesus says here to these Jews, He says, and you were willing to rejoice in His light for a while. Literally for an hour. Even they, these Jewish leaders, when John came on the scene, could not deny John's popularity. And there was even amongst them, you think of Nicodemus, there was a measure of approval and fascination with John's ministry. And yet, here they are but months later and they are seeking to kill the One of whom John spoke. That's a very sobering commentary on how fickle men can be. That they can one moment rejoice in the light of God's truth when it's fascinating to them, when it's exciting to them, and then moments later, days later, they can turn around and want to snuff out that same light. Just like we will see at the end of our Lord's ministry when one day they are crying out, Hosanna! And the very next day they're crying out, Crucify Him. John is the first testimony which Jesus calls upon. And John stands, as it were, as an accuser against their unbelief. Jesus says in verse 34, not that the testimony that I, have, that I receive is from man. That is, His case does not rest solely on human testimony. But he says, I say these things that you may be saved. Jesus is saying there, he didn't even need John's testimony. He has a greater testimony he could call on. Even his own word is trustworthy. But he says, even if you don't believe on my heavenly witness, believe and be saved on account of John's words. Now brings us to the second testimony in verse 36. He says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so, he starts with what we might call the least significant witness. He's condescended to them and called on John's human testimony. And now he says to them, but I have a testimony that's greater than that. Greater than human testimony. And he's going to call his father as his witness here in two two ways. The first is in the works that Jesus performs. And the second is the father bearing witness to him in the Scriptures. So first of all, he calls the works that he does. He says, the works which I do, which the Father has given me to finish, these testify that the Father has sent Me. This is nothing new in God bearing witness to His messengers and His prophets. You think back to Moses in the Old Testament when 
God commissions Moses, and Moses is fearful. And what are the first words out of Moses' mouth? Lord, what if I go to Your people and I tell them that You sent me and they don't believe that You sent me? And God says to Moses, Moses, what is that in your hand? And you remember the story of the staff and it turns to a snake and so forth. He declares to Moses, there will be inescapable proof going with you that you are indeed sent of me. If Moses' miracles attested to him being sent of God, as few and far between as Moses' miracles were, by the way, We sometimes read the Old Testament we just think Moses was doing miracles every single day. It's not not true. If those miracles bear witness that Moses was sent of God, how much more do the works of Christ show Him to be sent of the Father? Right? The book of Acts describes Him as one who went about always doing good, healing the sick because God was with Him. Now, in one sense... The entire life of Christ was a testimony that He was sent of the Father. Uh, Every work Christ did, every deed, every word He spoke, every sermon that He preached had uh, had impressed upon it the work of God. But I do think that Jesus is thinking more specifically and He's making reference here not just generically to all of His works, but specifically to the miraculous works Particularly like the one they have just seen with their own eyes. Right? Remember, this conversation is happening right on the tail end of Jesus raising this man who was infirmed for 38 years. And He says to them, the very works I am doing. Notice the tense. He doesn't just say the works that I have done, but He is intimating to them the very works I am doing in your very presence. God never sends a messenger without vindicating that messenger. And Jesus' works testify that the Father owned Him as His Messiah. These, you think about Jesus' audience here. These Jewish, probably broader than just the leaders, but no doubt leaders here rep, uh, leading the pack. They were not only eyewitnesses to John and his baptism and his preaching, human testimony, they were eyewitnesses to the Lord's glory. And Christ's Father set His seal to His Son through these works that He performed. And not only are these crowds guilty of rejecting human testimony, they are guilty of witnessing in their own presence divine miracles and refusing to acknowledge them as such. You think back to chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And it seems that already you see the workings of God's Spirit in Nicodemus because he at least had the humility to admit that Jesus, there is no way that there's any other way to explain these signs which you do except that God is with you. But these who are present here have hardened their hearts. That brings us to the third testimony. The testimony of the Father through the Scriptures. The testimony of the Father through the Scriptures. Not only did John bear witness, not only did Jesus' works bear witness that He was from the Father, the Father also testified of His Son long before in the Old Testament Scriptures. Look at verse 37. Verse 37, the Father who sent Me has Himself borne witness about Me. Now, this is where I mentioned the ESV having four testimonies. They, They view this as the Father bearing witness in a different way than the Scriptures. Um, some, and I don't, I don't say that about the ESV to say that that's totally impossible, but just to, in case that's what you have in front of you. Some read verse 37, the Father Himself has borne witness about Me. And they believe that what Jesus is referring to is He's referring back to His baptism when the Father spoke audibly from heaven, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I don't think that that's what Jesus has in mind here because notice the next words. He says to these Jews, His voice you have never heard and His form you have never seen. And so the question is, well, how then has the Father testified to them of His Son if they've never heard His voice and never, never seen His form? I think verse 38 answers that. 
Jesus says, and you do not have His what? Word abiding in you. For you do not believe the One whom He has sent. That's a very sharp indictment to these Jewish scribes and rulers who prided themselves on being men of the book, men of the law. And Jesus says to them, you you have the Word of God in your midst. You have the Word of God in your possession. You have it in your country. You have it in your synagogues and even in your memories. But you do not have My Father's Word abiding in you. That's a parallel to what we're going to see in chapter 6, verse 45, when Jesus says the only ones who will come to Him are those who have been taught of God. They had the Word in an external sense, but not the Word in a spiritual internal sense by the Spirit of God. They had it externally outside of them, but it was not ruling and commanding their hearts. If it were, Jesus says, you would have gladly received Me. Verse 39, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It it was a common phrase amongst the rabbis of this day. And the phrase went like this, he who has the words of the law has eternal life. As if the mere possession and even study of the Scriptures gave one eternal life. But in all of their study, they missed the central figure of the Scriptures. Jesus says to them of the Scriptures, it is they that bear witness about Me. And yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. Think about that, Christian. The Old Testament, right? that's what we call it now, that was the only Scriptures that were around at this time, They speak of Christ. Moses, the Law, the Prophets. They all speak of Christ. And they scrupulously studied those very Scriptures where as it were, Christ's face is staring right at us and they manage to do it in such a way that when God in the flesh comes to them, they hate Him. And they refuse Him. Verse 41, he says, I do not receive glory from people. What he's doing here is he's deflecting what, uh, he's deflecting a potential charge they would probably accuse him of. He wants to be very clear that he's not defending himself here for the sake of the praise of man. Right? Like, like he's just that miss, like he's that, uh, what would you call it? Egomaniac who is just frustrated and upset that all these people won't show him the honor that he's due. Right? He's making plain to them, I don't need your testimony and your belief to validate my, my uh, identity. But he says here, verse 42, he says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How does he know that? Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Jesus is making plain here, the reason they do not come to Him is because of their prejudice against the things of God. Again, think of the stinging rebuke that is. These religious leaders, not only are they not friends of God, they are averse to God. And though they put on a a facade of external godliness and religiosity, In their hearts, Jesus says, I know you. You don't have the first principle of religion in you. The love of God. Which is why they reject God in the flesh. But would readily receive, Jesus says, a false prophet. Why is that? Why do they reject God's true Son and they would readily receive a false prophet? It's because the false prophet who comes in his own name is more suitable to their sinful inclinations and desires. He goes further, verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This this is a driving, searching insight Jesus is giving for the reason for their unbelief. The reason for their unbelief 
and their hardness of heart is not because Jesus has not given them ample testimony. It's because according to Jesus, they love the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that comes from God. Meaning, they live to be honored by men on earth, not God from heaven. In other words, why do they not come to Jesus? They don't come to Jesus because Jesus is a threat to their pride. Jesus is a threat to everything they are and everything they've built their lives upon. To believe in Jesus would mean for them to repudiate their hypocrisy and repudiate their superficial righteousness. It would mean to humble themselves and forfeit their positions as the teachers and examples to Israel. They would have to admit We have missed the whole point of the Scriptures. And Jesus concludes in verse 45. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for he wrote of Me. But if you do not believe His writings, how will you believe My words? Incredible few few verses right there. What He's saying to them is He's saying come judgment day when we meet, and He's already declared Himself to them to be that One through whom the Father will judge the world. He says such is your condemnation that come judgment day when we meet face to face, I won't even need to accuse you before the Father. Because you rejected me long before you even met me in the flesh when you rejected Moses. The one on whom you have set your hope, you don't even listen to. Because if you did listen to Moses and you did listen to his writings, you would listen to me and believe me. That closes our exposition. Let's turn to our doctrine and application our doctrine and application. And I've combined these this morning. It seems that happens more often than not as of recent days. I can't keep my word length short enough, and so I just have to put them together. So that's what you get this morning. I I have two things that I want to extract from this text that are both doctrinal instruction for us as God's people as well as the practical applications for us as God's people. Two things, and I'll give them to you one at a time as we work our way through them. Number one, I mentioned this. I believe it was in John chapter 1. I don't even remember hardly what I said, so I'm assuming none of you remember what I said. But I want to elaborate and pick up more of what I kind of wet the whistle uh, on back then. Number one is this. God has given this world ample credible and reliable testimony to command our belief in Christ and the Gospel. Okay? God has given this world ample testimony in order to require and command our belief in the Gospel. Christian, this is important in our apologetics and our evangelism. How we relate to the skeptic. How we relate to the one who has doubts as reasons for their unbelief. But it's also, Christian, an encouragement to the faith of the believer. And I want to open up both, both those things. Number one, let me, let me speak to the skeptic. And I'm either speaking to you, you might be here and you are a skeptic. You have reasons for why you don't believe the Word of God and you don't believe the Gospel. I'm speaking to you this morning. I'm also speaking to you, Christian, in training you for your encounter with those who will be skeptics. Here's something that we, we need to understand, and it's, it's all over this passage. Sinners are really good. I'm going to use a big word here and then explain it, okay? Sinners are really good at adopting epistemologies, there's the big word, that are convenient for their unbelief. Okay? Now, what's epistemology? Epistemology is a big word for the study of how we have knowledge. It's the study of how can we know a thing and what makes a thing credible or not credible 
to be believed or not believed, right? That's all within the realm of epistemology. And sinners by nature who are in moral darkness at enmity with God are really clever when it comes to adopting their own epistemologies, their own standards of what deserves to be believed, which when those are embraced, they automatically make the Bible an invalid testimony. Okay? And they do this because it's an intellectual way for them to justify themselves remaining apart from Christ and in their unbelief. So I'll give you a couple examples. Someone might say to you, well, I don't and I can't believe the Bible because it's written by men. You might not think in these categories. They're, they're making known to you, whether they're consistent or not, part of their epistemology, right? What, what is that epistemology put in a nutshell? Well, it would be men are incapable of writing anything trustworthy. A couple problems with that. First of all, I've never ever met someone who lives consistently with that epistemology. But second of all, that's an assertion being made by a man, isn't it? And if it is, does that make that assertion untrue? Right? You've, got a, you've got a chicken and the egg problem there if you want to say that anything said by a man is not trustworthy. That's why I can't believe the Bible. Um, Jesus here, Christian, we need to... Here's a main takeaway. We need to get our epistemology unashamedly from the Bible itself. Jesus here clearly thought that a man's testimony can be trustworthy. Right? Verse 33. I know that John's testimony is true. He came and he bore witness about the truth. Or another example of an epistemology. I mentioned this one last time. Uh, what we would call empiricism. Right? It's the idea that um, I can only believe the Bible if the signs and... This is an example. I can only believe the Bible if the signs and wonders the Bible described were to be performed in my own presence so that my own very eyes could see them done. Right? That's basically the, um, the foundation of empiricism. It's the idea that the only trustworthy source of knowledge is my own experience. Here's, another, here's a problem with that. Think about the Jews standing here talking to Jesus. They did see the sign. And yet, they are still unbelieving. So if that's you this morning, don't think that visual experience and seeing something with your own eyeballs somehow is a guarantee that you will necessarily believe something. But secondly, here's a second problem with that. Who says that the standard by which we judge whether something happened in the past is based on whether or not that same thing is happening today? There are plenty of things that you have never seen, and yet you believe with all your heart they happened. Are we going to say to God that because He's not parting the Red Sea today, He never did it in the past? Or because God's Son is not rising triumphant from the grave every day for me to see with my eyes, that means God's Son never raised from the dead. Here's the point. As much as sinners, and this might be you this morning, as much as sinners might try to comfort themselves with epistemologies that in their mind excuse them from, from their unbelief, and put the blame on God for not giving better testimony of Himself, here's the reality at the end of the day. We don't set the standard. God on Judgment Day is not going to say, hey, before we get started here, is there anyone, is there anyone here who believed a different standard of what constitutes good evidence other than the one that I established? Because if that's you, you can be dismissed. God's not going to say, He's not going to go down the line and say, okay, you believe that anything written by men was untrustworthy. Okay, you can, you can go here because you didn't accept my standard of what good testimony was. It's not, that's not going to happen. This is the reality. You are a creature 
living in God's world, you are made in His image, and He knows and He determines what is sufficient evidence to compel our belief, and He has given it to us. You can create all the standards that you want. They aren't going to stand up on Judgment Day. Jesus appeals here to three legitimate testimonies that were sufficient to require their belief. Human testimony, the works that He performed, and the Scriptures. And my friend, if you're sitting here and you're a skeptic, you're, you think you're indifferent, wherever you are, if you have not closed with Christ, I want to speak to you. Those are three testimonies by which God will hold you accountable. And you might be saying to yourself, but there are false testimonies in the world. We know that. So often people bear false testimony. Well, sure there are false testimonies. The world I know is full of them. But that doesn't mean that there aren't true testimonies. And the devil would love you to reason that way to your soul's everlasting peril. That because there have been counterfeits, that must mean that nothing is true. Nothing is real. Listen to me. No one, absolutely no one has produced the one thing that would prove Christ and Christianity is phony. No one has produced the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ. But hundreds saw Him risen from the dead. And if that is so, that means His words have authority. And His words command your belief. If that's you this morning, sinner, come to Christ. Believe upon Christ and His Gospel. You do not now see Him. I know that. I don't now see Him. He sits in heaven at God's right hand. But my friend, the Scriptures wrote about Him. His works, which were seen by thousands, testified that He was the sent Son of the Father. And He died for the sins of His people. And He rose from the dead in the clear light of day, not in a corner. And He ascended into heaven where He reigns as the King of glory. And that message is being proclaimed just like He was telling these Jews so that they might be saved. It's being proclaimed to you so that you might be saved. My friend, believe the glad tidings of Christ dying for sinners and rising for their salvation. Don't go the way of these Jews. These Jews had all the evidence they needed. They had God's human messenger. They had Christ's works. They had His words. They had the Scriptures and they chose to close their eyes. It's like walking outside and closing your eyes and saying, therefore, the Son does not exist. Don't go the way of unbelief. Look to Christ by the eyes of faith and receive Him. That's the word to the skeptic. But secondly, on this point, Christian, there are comforts here from this text for our, the strengthening of our faith. What might those be? Well, simply this. According to this passage, and very clearly so, our faith, the Christian faith, does not rest in myths and fables and in a, just a blind leap down the rabbit hole, sort of without reason, believing whatever we're told to believe. That's, that's what a lot of people think Christians mean when they talk about faith, right? Is I, I don't know why I would believe it, but i gotta, I got to put my faith somewhere. Don't know why. I'm going to put it here. That's not what we mean by faith. The Christian faith is founded on testimony. It's founded on God's testimony. God's witness to this world. It happened in history to be seen and to be proclaimed and to be defended. The Scriptures declared it. The testimony of men testified to it. And even the testimony of of natural revelation pours forth speech that our faith is not in vain. 
Jesus here appeals to a variety of testimony to furnish them for reasons to believe. And so, Christian, here's an application. We also should look to the variety of testimony that God has given to His church to buttress and strengthen our faith. Listen to Matthew Henry. A sermon by me is not complete without a Matthew Henry quote. This is one of those... This is Matthew Henry at his best. He made this same observation from this text about Jesus appealing to human testimony and then divine testimony, etc. Matthew Henry says, Observe, though the witness of John was a less cogent and less considerable witness, yet our Lord was pleased to make use of it. And then he makes this application. We must be glad of all the supports that offer themselves for the confirmation of our faith. Though they may not amount to demonstration, that is, though they may not be entirely conclusive, and we must not invalidate any proof under the pretense pretense that there are others more conclusive, but rather, we have occasion for them all. I think that's a brilliant extraction from this text and Jesus' example. What he's saying is Jesus recognizes John's human testimony is not as significant as the Father's testimony, and yet he still appeals to it, and therefore he's demonstrating that we too, as Christ's people, should not despise even the smallest witness of God's truth that he has given to us. I'll give you a couple examples of that. The testimony of church history might in many ways be likened to the testimony of John here, right? Church history is it's human testimony, it's not scripture. It's not our own eyewitness experience. We weren't there for the vast majority of church history. Now let me ask you this. Does our faith in the Gospel rest solely upon the fact that centuries of Christians have proven the reality of the Gospel and the grace of God in their own lives? Is that ultimately what our faith rests in? No. right. But is is not church history a strengthener of our faith? when you read the lives and the works of that great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, is that not just an an added testimony to the testimony of God's Word and the truthfulness of Scripture? As it strengthens our faith, as we read of the Christ who is in our brother or our sister's life, and are reminded that that same Christ dwells within me by His Spirit. These are things that though they may not be conclusive proof, for this is why Christianity is true, nonetheless, it's something that God's people should buttress and furnish our faith with. Or I'll give you you a second example. This is one that I think is controversial in our day, um, so I might make friends or enemies, but um, even God's testimonies that He's given us in the world that He has made are given to strengthen the faith of the Christian. Right, this, this world is God's world. God reveals Himself in Scripture and He has revealed Himself in natural revelation. And in creating this world, He has decked it out with ample testimonies which testify of His existence and His character. Right, that's what Romans 1 says. That's not just you know, empty philosophy. Paul says, ever since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes have been clearly seen in the things that have been made. So, even things like theistic proofs. Some of you have heard of the theistic proofs, probably. Um, some people poo-poo those, and you know, I don't, Christians should just not bother with those things. I think there's great value in those things. Um, I mean, even, even pagans, without the Scriptures, have reasoned from, through philosophy and through deduction. They've come to the conclusion Everything that is, that's an effect, so to speak, has a cause. And they realize if every effect has a cause, there can't just be an infinite regression of causes, otherwise there would never be a first cause to start that first effect. And they, even without the Scripture's reason, therefore, there must at first, at some point, you must hit one that is not itself caused, but caused all things. Now, does that by itself lead you to an understanding of the Trinity? 
And the saving Gospel of Christ? No. But it confirms the same things that Scriptures teach us about God. In other words, it may not go as far as the Scriptures go, but it does not contradict. In fact, it bears witness to what the Scriptures say about God. That God is the One who simply is. That He is the One who is Himself without beginning, without cause, and He is the One who caused everything else. Christian, these are things God has given His church to furnish our and and strengthen our faith with. That our faith is not based on myth and fable, but rather on real credible evidence and testimony that compels and commands our belief and encourages us in that belief. That's the first point of doctrine and application. Secondly, the second thing before we come to a close We are instructed from this text about the danger of shallow acquaintance with God's Word. We are instructed in this text of the danger of shallow acquaintance with God's Word. There are many things that should frighten us in the Bible. Christians sometimes read the Bible and they just think everything needs to be a perfectly comforting word to me. No, there there are certain things that are meant even for the child of God to cause us to tremble as it were. This is one of those for me. Jesus says to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness to Me. Brothers and sisters, how we ought to be warned about the reality of spiritual deception by the example of the Jews here. Think about this. These are Jews that have the Scriptures memorized. They would put us to shame in our memorization of the Old Testament. The Scriptures were their heritage. You think of Paul in Philippians 3 and um, all of his accolades of being a Pharisee of Pharisees, blameless before the law. They studied daily, debated daily, intensely. Everything whichever way you want to put it, about the Scriptures. That was their life. And they knew not a single thing of Christ. In fact, they actually hated the Christ of the Scriptures. They simultaneously searched the Scriptures and, Jesus says, did not have the love of God within them. They simultaneously searched the Scriptures and they would more readily receive a false prophet who comes in His own name than to read the to receive the very Son of God from the Father. That is frightening. That you can come so close to the things of God. You can have the greatest privilege of pouring over the Scriptures every day and your heart can be simultaneously utterly far from God. Christian, acquaintance with the Word of God is not the same thing as acquaintance with God. You can know about God and you can know of God without actually knowing God. There are many reasons why one might study the Scriptures with an intent other than knowing God and beholding His glory. And in fact, this text, I think Jesus alludes to one of those reasons. Jesus says of them, you live for the glory that comes from man. And I know he doesn't elaborate on that here, but I can kind of with my sanctified imagination and pulling on what else we know about the Jews from other places of Scripture, I can guess what that looked like. That on a practical level, they studied Scripture not to be commended by God, but to be praised by men. And to gain more reputation than the next guy. That I want to be smarter than him. I want to be the guy that they run to with the questions. Right? I mean, look at, look at how the people just fawn over Rabbi Zephaniah over there. And he's, he's just the spiritual guru that everyone just 
falls all over. Teach us, Rabbi. That's the way that they studied the Scriptures. You remember uh, Rev Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof? It's one of the only musicals I like, by the way. So probably the only time you'll ever get a reference to a musical in one of my sermons. Um, I'm not getting a lot of response, so hopefully some of you have seen this movie. <laughs> Rev Tevia, the song, If I Were a Rich Man, and he's just thinking about you know, what he would do if he had all the money he wanted. And at one of, that, one of those climactic parts of the song, um, he says, the most important men will come to what? To fawn on me. And they would ask me to advise them. I'm not going to sing it for you. <laughs> they would ask me to advise them. Like Solomon the Wise, if you please, Rev Tevya, pardon me, Rev Tevya, posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eyes, right? There can be totally carnal reasons for why one studies the scriptures. I'll give you a, an analogy, I guess. I remember uh, when I was young, first grade. Every one of the students was given a at the beginning of the year a paper ice cream cone that we stapled on the wall. Each of us did it. had your name on it. And every book that you read, you would get given a paper ice cream scoop that you would then you know, staple on, each on top of, of the next with the name of the book you read. And I knew I wanted the tallest ice cream anyone had ever seen. And so what did I do? I lied. And I just made up all sorts of books that I read so that I could you know, have, this is how learned I am, everybody. This is, I mean, I still to this day can't believe a teacher didn't call me out on that. I think probably the Bible was among those books. Like, yeah, the first, the first grader read the Bible in two days. Um, <laughs> that's something of how they searched the Scriptures. The Scriptures were simply a means to the accolades of men for them. And in the process of the pursuit of their own pride, they missed Christ. Christian, let me ask you. Search yourself. Do you study the Scriptures to know Christ? As an end in itself, to know the God whose blood bought you and redeemed you. That's how you should study the Scriptures. Old and New Testament, according to Jesus, are Christian Scripture. Or do you study the Bible for a different purpose? A carnal purpose to be puffed up with knowledge, to be the one who can put on a show. You know, I've read the Bible this many times already this year. That question of why we're studying the scriptures, why we're reading the scriptures, it can be very subtle what's going on in our hearts. People can study the scriptures for all sorts of reasons other than knowing Christ and knowing God. In fact, People can be enamored with certain biblical topics that you don't have to be born again to have an interest in. Just because someone seems to be enamored with the Word of God doesn't necessarily mean that that's a work of the Spirit. I'll give you a perfect example. End times. Eschatology. I have known personally, this is not just, there's probably someone out there who does this. I have known personally people absolutely enamored with how this whole thing is going to play out, how this world is going to end. And they're reading Revelation and they're reading the Old Testament prophets and studying the symbols and they're, you know, getting the timeline straight and they're trying to figure out what the mark of the beast is going to be and all these things. And yet, those same people. Their hearts seem to care nothing for Christ. It's not unique to eschatology. I've known people who studied the Bible because they're fascinated by its positions on political theory and law and politics and ethics and things like that. And yet, again, Christ is absent. Or, I'll give you another example. Even people who approach the Bible like it's a book of quick fixes to just fix my problems. right? And they, they come to the Bible like it's a therapeutic textbook. That 
I need to find three things, to, you know, ways to fight my anxiety or three ways to get my marriage back or whatever, whatever it might be. And they're missing the point. Listen to me. Eschatology does not give you eternal life. Political theory does not give you eternal life, even if it comes from the Bible. Three things that you learn to improve your life is not going to give you eternal life. Christ gives you eternal life. The centerpiece of all the Scriptures. He Himself, a person, He is our life. And to study the Scriptures apart from Christ and finding Christ is a meaningless pursuit. As these Jews model for us, the study of the Scriptures is only life-giving because they reveal the person of Christ to us. And it is sad, people can peer into the Scriptures in which, as it were, the face of Christ is looking up at us from every page. And people, their eyes do weird things. And you know how you can sometimes, something's close to you and you just can look right past it so you can see what's behind it. People look right through Christ and they go to the Bible for all other sorts of ends and they miss the One who saves their soul. Let me speak to us as we close. It's very possible that there are some here this morning, even members of Bethany, members of the church, as you reflect on this text, the the relation that these Jews had to God, the emptiness of that, truth be told, you realize if you are honest in your heart of hearts that your relation to God is more like these Jews. You know you're acquainted with the things of God. You're around the people of God. You have contact, as it were, with these spiritual realities in the community of the church. But His Word is not in you. And you know your heart is not full of love to God, but rather with love for this present world. If that's you this morning, it's not too late. Christ receives hypocrites. You want a chief example of that? I'll give you two. Nicodemus was in this exact boat. Was blind to the meaning of Scripture. Was utterly dumbfounded when Jesus talked to him about the new birth. And yet, what happens to Nicodemus? He becomes a Christian. Second example, the Apostle Paul. Same type of Pharisee. Shallow understanding of God's Word and God's law. And yet, God made to Paul Christ the most precious thing to him. Come to the Scriptures to know Christ. Cry out to God that He would make you yearn and long not just for knowledge, not for worldly pursuits or whatever it is, the reason that drives you to the Scriptures, but ask God that you would go to the Scriptures with a hunger and a thirst to know God and to love God. I pray that God would be pleased, if that's you, to remove the veil and to reveal to you the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But second group of people. There are others here, genuine Christians, but it's very possible you've drifted. It's texts like these that instruct not just the outright hypocrite, but also the Christian who can fall into hypocrisy. It can't be said of you that they do not have the love of God within them, but it might be said of you that you have lost your first love. And that the Scriptures have become less precious to you. You look back on your life and you know that today I don't wake up with the same eagerness in the morning to read the Scriptures. And with the same prayer on my lips, Father, cause me to see the glories of Your Son this morning but rather you've allowed the things of God and the things of Christ to become overly familiar and overly common, and you just honestly feel like these things are a bit of old news. 
Perhaps you're here this morning and you realize, you know what, I've been coming to the Bible for all these different tangential things and studies, but I've been neglecting the main thing to know and be known by God. What do you do? What do you do, Christian? First of all, you pray. Father, restore to me the joy of my salvation. One of the greatest texts in the Psalms. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's not uncommon for the Christian to wax and to wane in their love of God's Word and in their communion with God. But what ought the Christian to do the moment they realize they went off the path? They pray, Lord, bring me back. My heart, I feel it, is wandering. It's getting cold. It's getting dry. And therefore, Lord, keep Your servant. You pray, Lord, soften this hardened heart of mine and cause me to behold wondrous things in Your law. Psalm 119, verse 33, I believe. You pray, Lord, cause Your testimonies to be sweet to me as honey. Pray, Lord, if anything is sweet to me in this world, make it Jesus Christ that is sweet to me. Cause me to delight in Him who is my life and is my wisdom and my righteousness and my sanctification. Brothers and sisters, I'm in the same boat with you. Sometimes we need to repent of how we have neglected God even while attending the means of grace. You can attend the means of grace with a dry heart. A cold heart. Just going through the motions. I just sang a hymn and for the life of me, can't remember what it's even about. Right? Just read a chapter. There's nothing, it seems, going on in here. We need to repent of those things. You know, own before God, I should be responding, Lord, with more joy, more thankfulness, more love. And Lord, would You work within me that which is pleasing in Your sight. Christian, if that's you, And no doubt, it's all of us to an extent. If that is you, remember the Gospel. Christian, Christ will gladly receive you again. The Gospel is not one and done. You sinned for the fifth time, same way, that's it. Christ will receive His children. In fact, He delights to receive His children and restore restore them. I'd say this as well. Last thing. I would counsel you this way, if that's you, Christian. Also, in addition to prayer, means of grace, give yourself to stirring conversation with those who genuinely love the Lord. And when I say that, I mean purposefully. When you feel your heart in declension, or in decline, and you feel it's lukewarm, it's getting a little less than lukewarm, purposefully place yourself around those Christians who you know they will take me by the hand as it were and they will walk me into the height and the depths of the glories of Christ. They will talk to me not just about the shell, not just about tangential things, but they will talk to me of Christ. And by the Christ in the mouth of my brother, I will be strengthened. Brothers and sisters, let us, let us close Let us give ourselves in response to God's Word afresh to God. Let us repent where repenting is necessary. And let us glory in the cross of Christ which takes away all of our sins. Amen. Let's pray. Father, forgive us, we pray. It would be wrong for us to gloat over the unbelief of these Jewish leaders without recognizing, Father, that in our own hearts, not only were we once exactly like them, ignorant of Christ, missing the witness and testimony that You have given us, but even as Your people, Father, how we can fall into being those who study the Scriptures. We become, 
We come so close to the things of God and yet we do it for different reasons than knowing You and enjoying You and seeing Your glory. Father, forgive us for that, we pray. We thank You that with You there is mercy to be found, that You may be feared. We thank You that You are patient with us. That You have loved us before the foundation of the world and You will love us after this world unto eternity, into all ages. Father, we thank You that You've sent Your Son as the demonstration of Your love to take out of the way every hindrance that kept You from showing us Your favor We thank You for Christ, His life, His excruciating death, His resurrection. Father, we pray that we would walk away from Your Word not as the man who looks in a mirror and forgets what he looks like, but as one who's been pierced. That we would meditate upon Your precepts. That we would meditate upon the words of our Savior. That we would be exhorted Lord, cause us to deal honestly with our own hearts. Cause us to be transparent. Father, the fear of man is a snare. How often we are fearful of owning our sin because of the fear of man. We pray that we would deal honestly with our own hearts before You. That we would be faithful to to receive the lesson and that, Lord, Your Spirit would change us. We pray that Your Spirit would give us strength. And transform us into the likeness of Christ more and more from one degree of glory to the next. Father, we pray for the unconverted this morning. We pray if there be any here who are hardening their hearts against the testimony of Your Word, or perhaps even those who are taken in by self-deception and think they know You because they have Your Word, but truly don't. Father, Make them alive. Make them aware. Cause them to be pierced by Your Word so that their soul may be saved. That they may truly know the joy of salvation. That they would possess the root of salvation. Father, be with us this day. We pray that You'd bless us in our lunch together, in our family meeting as well as in our afternoon service. Pray that You'd be with our brother Thaddeus. Pray that You would cause us to feast this Lord's Day on Your Word that we would be edified and built up in our faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The very last words of our Bible, God addresses His people with these words that He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. And the response of God's people is, Amen, even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. We will have a five minute break. If you need to get kids from nursery or use restroom real quick, then we will come back uh, for our family meeting. All are welcome. Uh, Please, if you're a member, make every effort to stay. It won't be a very long meeting. So five minutes.